Hubhopper Originals. To start your podcast for free, log on to studio.hubhopper.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to Indie Jeans. Today, we have the pleasure of immersing ourselves into the awe-inspiring world of science fiction and space exploration with the true luminary in the field. Our guest today wears many hats as an accomplished author. He paints vivid landscapes of imagination, crafting compelling science fiction novels that transport readers to distant realms of possibility. His expertise extends far beyond the realm of the written word as the principal investigator for the near scout and solar cruise sail projects at the esteemed NASA George C Marshall Space Flight Center. He spearheads the exploration of revolutionary propulsion technologies, harnessing the power of sunlight, and he and his team propel our dreams of interstellar travel forward, pushing the boundaries of human achievement. He also has further accomplishments that have earned him well-deserved recognition and admiration within scientific circles. He holds esteemed positions such as an elected member of the International Academy of Astronauts, a fellow of the British Interplanetary Society, and membership in the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. When he puts his pen to paper, he captures the spirit of visionaries like Arthur C. Clarke and his contemporaries as highlighted by Publishers Weekly. Throughout his remarkable career, he has held pivotal roles including manager for the space science programs and project office the in-space propulsion technology project and the interstellar propulsion research project so join us as we embark on this intellectual odyssey exploring the realms where science imagination and the cosmos converge prepare to be captivated inspired and enlightened by the brilliant mind of none other than Les Johnson a physicist author and NASA technologist so Les from everyone here in India and Indian genes a very very warm welcome to you i guess it's early morning there and thanks for taking time out to speak to all of us here Les No, I'm glad to do that. I I love talking about uh, space and science and technology and writing and and the great future we can have and uh, look forward to uh, reaching some folks that may not have uh, had a chance to hear me talk about it before. Perfect. And why don't you let our listeners know a little bit more about you and what you are currently doing and in what capacity you are speaking to us today? Sure, I'll be glad to do that. Yeah, hi, I'm Les Johnson. I am uh, here in here in the U.S. I live in uh, Madison, Alabama, which is in the southeast part of the country. Uh, I am a physicist. I write uh, popular science books about space and science and technology, and I'm also a NASA technologist. I've worked at NASA for about a little over 30 years, where I've had the honor of serving as the lead for the advancement of some new technologies for spacecraft systems that have flown in space. Most recently I had a, a small spacecraft launch on the Artemis 1 last November. That's very exciting and whenever we talk about space and space travel I have got to apologize to you first. I know I kept you waiting online but I think that's a perfect 
place I would want to start because as we go about our daily lives, it's difficult for a lot of us to keep track of time and space and distance right here on, on Earth itself. And I was trying to figure out what is the right time in, in the US as compared to India. Now, when we talk about traveling to the nearest star, for example, and I don't mean the sun, but how important is it do you think that people listening to you need to understand that the distances and time that we're talking about, it sometimes makes sense as a number, but do we actually understand what that means? Wow, that's a really good question. And the answer to that is, I don't even think astronomers really understand what that means. Uh, the numbers are huge. Uh, even within our solar system, the distances uh, between planets and the comparative size and scale of things are, are absolutely amazing. Uh, I'll have to ask the indulgence of your audience, since I live in the U.S., I don't think uh, SI units or metric, I think in, you know, English units, which they don't even use anymore. Right. So I'm, I'm all about feet and miles and things like that. And, and when I give, uh, talks to audiences and schools and students, I like to give this demonstration to kind of give you an idea of these distances. Um, the earth to the sun distance, which is a long way, it's about 93 million miles. Now that distance in terms of, of interplanetary and interstellar distances is extremely small. But for you and me, we have no idea what that means. I, we have no experience base to discuss that, right? Um, I, I have a car that I've driven for 15 years. It's a Honda. <laughs> Not endorsing it, just saying it's a reliable car. And I have over 260,000 miles on that car. And what that means is I've driven it to the moon, okay? And it's taken me 15 years of driving around this big country, going from city to city and things like that. But I experientially now know from, from life what that means and how long it takes and, and, and that distance. So that's, that's great, but that's even a small distance compared to the sun. That's a quarter of a million miles. And we're talking about 93 million to the sun. It's so big that astronomers came up with a unit called an astronomical unit. And that's how they describe the distances between the planets and the solar system. So Mars is only another half an astronomical unit out, half of 93 million miles. Well, it's, we haven't sent people there yet. And it takes our spacecraft the better part of a year to get to Mars. If you want to get to Neptune, that's out around 30 astronomical units. So 30 times 93 million miles, and it takes a spacecraft traveling at, you know, 8, 9, 10, uh, and I can tell you this in, in, in the right units, kilometers per second faster than, you know, the Earth's orbit to get there, right? So it takes, it takes a while. And those distances are just huge. So if you're in a room, and you hold up my foot. Uh, my foot is about 12 inches long, so it's you know an English king's foot length long. Um, and and I pace out this astronomical unit, and I say from my heel to my toe is one astronomical unit. So the sun's at the heel, the Earth is at my toe. So to go to Neptune, you know, an average size classroom or an average size room in a building or or in a larger home is 30 feet away. So you can pace that out, and you get a sense of in the scale of the solar system. Well, on that scale. The nearest star to the sun, which is Proxima Centauri, is over 50 miles. So 50 miles times 5,280 feet in a mile times 93 million miles gives you an idea of that distance. It is so far that the Voyager spacecraft launched in 1977, which are the furthest spacecraft out in the solar system from our sun, they are uh, about 138 to 140 astronomical units out. So 138 of less is feet 
But they to get to the nearest star at the rate they're going, and they're among the fastest spacecraft we've ever launched, it'll take them 70,000 years to get to the nearest star. So that's the scale that we're talking about for just the first interstellar voyage. If you start talking about going to stars beyond that, uh, it, it, the distances get even more unmanageable. When you talk about these distances less, you're talking about probably using chemical rockets because I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's what started it all in 1924, if I'm not mistaken. But these distances are measured if we go by chemical rockets. And a follow-up question would be, then we could probably lead into what you're currently doing with uh, with, with space sales and the project that you're working on. And is that going to uh, reduce the time or distance? Well, I, I have to tell you, when, when we talk about the time and distance, I, I don't know how it is in India, but Americans tend to talk distance and time <laughs> differently than most of my European and Japanese friends that I've encountered. Um, when we talk about distances here in the U.S., we usually talk in terms of how many hours away it is, uh, because we think of the, how long it'll take us to drive on the interstate highway system at, at the speed limit to get from place to place. Like, my home is about two hours away from Nashville, and that's how I would answer friends when they ask me, you know, how far away is Nashville? Uh, it, it's about uh, 100 miles, so what, 140, 150 so kilometers, um, and well, that, so you mentioned that 70,000 years. That's correct. That's using chemical rockets. Now, we can do a little bit better today than we did when we launched Voyager because we can stack things on bigger rockets. But basically, the best you can do with a chemical rocket is get that time to go to the nearest star down from 70,000 years, maybe to 55,000 years. Well, that's great. That doesn't help you or me, right? I mean, that's longer than civilizations existed. If we're going to have a realistic trip time to the stars, we have to go a lot faster. And chemical rockets, even if you take their theoretical efficiency, which is all of the energy out of the making of chemical bonds, which is how chemical rockets work, with the best rocket propellant, you're not going to get any better than that. So they're really physics limited. So when, when you look around then and you say, well, how can we go faster? The answer is you need more energy to put in your propellant. Uh, for a conventional rocket of any kind, uh, which I define as something where if you want to go to the right, you throw something overboard to the left. And this thing called momentum is conserved. And, and the easiest way for a listener who's not a physicist to think about this is imagine yourself standing on roller skates or a skateboard and you throw a basketball off uh, where you're standing. As the basketball moves in one direction, you kind of recoil a little bit and roll in the other. But then if you throw a bowling ball off, you're going to move a lot more because that big massive bowling ball and the velocity you give it is, is going to push you in the other direction more. So if you have a better rocket and a better propellant than chemical, you can go faster. So people have looked at nuclear. You know, we think of nuclear bombs and the energy of a nuclear plant as being plentiful and, you know, the energy of the atom. And, and while that's true, it really helps. You can probably get that trip time, you know, down to 10 to 15,000 years. <laughs> Still too long. Um, so we have to look beyond that. And, and people have looked at the theoretical energy output of, of fusion which we hope to have powering our, 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 our country and our world, hopefully because it's green and, and no carbon emissions and scientists are really working hard on that. But then the trip time might get down into uh, a thousand years, which is, is, is still too long. Uh, and, and you're really reaching the limit of what rockets can do at that point, unless you get to really exotic matter, things like antimatter, which is real, 
but really hard to capture, store, and, and safely use, um, and is really the ultimate rocket propellant. So, so people like me have asked the question, and, and I address this in, in, in my book, A Traveler's Guide to the Stars, you know, are there alternatives to rockets? And, and people will say, well, what do you mean? I mean, don't you have to have a, a drive? I mean, in Star Wars, they have the warp drive and the Millennium Falcon. Well, that's all science fiction. But within known laws of physics, there are other ways to get spacecraft propulsion. And that's why I started many years ago looking at solar sailing and how it could evolve to something called a laser sail, which might actually get that trip time to another star down to something manageable, like hundreds of years. Wow. And when you talk about solar sails, could you let us know how the engineering to that works and how does the rocket actually work that way? Or I sure. don't think it's a rocket, right? It would be a CubeSat or something? Well, yeah, you wouldn't really call it a rocket because a rocket is something technically that you throw something all overboard. You have some kind of an exhaust that makes you move, right? And with a sail, you don't have that. Your, your energy comes from somewhere else. You don't have to take all that energy on board with you. And you don't have to take all the weight of that propellant. So it, a sail, a solar sail, forgive my southern drawl here. People have a hard time if I'm saying S-A-I-L or C-E-L-L. -L. I'm saying S-A-I-L, a sail like in a sailboat. Works just like a sailboat. You have um, your, your ship that you want to send somewhere, you have a mast, and you have your sail. And on Earth, the, the wind hits the sail and reflects from it. And momentum is conserved in that it pushes the sail. So on a windy day, or if you're on a train or driving down the road and you stick your hand out the window and, and you, you tilt your palm up, the, the air pressure is going to force your hand back. That's the wind blowing on your hand. Well, the sun emits light. And people don't realize this, but the everyday lights in the room where you're listening to this podcast, or if you go out on a, a, any day, or particularly a sunny day, as the light reflects from you, it's pushing on you. Now, light's made up of these little particles called photons. And each of these photons, uh, though it doesn't have rest mass, which is a quirky thing of, of physics, it does have momentum. So as it bounces from you, it's like a little ping pong ball bouncing off of you, and it loses a little bit of energy, and that energy is given to you in the form of a slight bump. Now, the reason you don't feel this pressure on the Earth with all these photons hitting you is because we're on the Earth's surface with its gravity, we've got air currents, and the force of sunlight is extremely, extremely small. Uh, it's on the order if, of if you have uh, two soccer fields on a dry, sunny day and the sun's directly overhead, the total light pressure on the entire area of two soccer fields combined is about the same force that you'd feel on the palm of your hand holding a quarter or a coin, okay? Oh. So it's not much. But if you go into space and you're away from the Earth's gravity and you don't have all that air and you're just in the emptiness of space, and you unfurl something extremely large and lightweight, very shiny, so it reflects visible light. We actually, most people, we use aluminum, and that reflects about 90% of the visible light. And, the, and this material is very thin. Uh, it's about two and a half microns, which is thinner than a human hair. Attached to your spacecraft, the light reflecting from that sail will push that sail. 
and it'll do it as long as the light shines on it. Now, it's not much of a push, but it's constant. Unlike a rocket, which gives a big oomph when it lights off, it quickly an oomph is a technical term for rocket scientists, just saying. Um, when, when, it, when it moves, it, it, it uses up all that propellant, and when it runs out of propellant, it can't accelerate anymore, and it just coasts, like Voyager. Voyager stopped thrusting decades ago. It will never go any faster. But a solar sail, as long as there's light shining on it, will accelerate to faster and faster speeds. So if you build a really large, lightweight sail, much lighter weight than we can build today, but theoretically, it's possible because we have materials that if we learn how to engineer them are light enough to make this happen. So it's not science fiction. You could build sails that could be as large as a square kilometer, although that's orders of magnitude larger than anything we can build today. Deploy them very close to the sun where the sunlight pressure is very strong and start them on a voyage to the stars moving very quickly. And then as you get away from the sun and that thrust drops from the sunlight getting more dim, you could put in the outer solar system perhaps really big lasers that are powered by your nuclear reactor to shine laser light on the sail to keep accelerating it. And you could get trip times down to decades to the nearest star. So suddenly it's feasible that we might start sending robotic probes to Alpha and Proxima Centauri, maybe farther out to, to, to some of the other stars. So it's possible. It, it's far away from an engineering point of view, but from a fundamental physics point of view, nature is saying, hey, you can do this. Beautiful. And when you talk about the sails, Les, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is the shape of the sail. Does that make a difference? Is a rectangle better than a square or a triangle or a circle? And does that also depend on which direction you're going or how far you want to go? That's really a good question, and the answer is it doesn't matter. There are designs, and the design that, that I favor because it's the simplest to build and figure out how to deploy and control, is something that's square. And we like that because it's very symmetric, okay? If you're sticking a boom out in one direction, the same length boom in the other, and everything balances, and you, you don't have one side of the sail bigger than the other, which might cause it to tip or tilt because a bigger sail area on one side of your spacecraft would feel more pressure and it might cause your sail to tip over. So you want things to be symmetric. And, and it's just the design we've picked. Uh, the Japanese, with their Icarus sail that flew in 2010 in interplanetary space as a test, it was a circular sail. And, and, and instead of holding it still, like we do, which is called three-axis stabilized, uh, they're spun to keep it flat, a low uh, a spinning sail, which is a great idea. It's harder to control, but you might be able to get a lighter weight, larger sail that way. There are also uh, people that are looking at how you might deploy sails that aren't square or circular, but are long, thin rectangles, uh, perhaps much, uh, much longer than they are wide. So you have these sails that are like long, thin ribbons that are deployed in space uh, or combinations uh, thereof. So yes, you, you could do many shaped sails, and it just really depends on your design philosophy and, and where your breakthroughs are. Mm. And you mentioned most of the sails these days are aluminum, but, it, and again, is, is there or was there a discovery recently somewhere, I think it was somewhere in Manchester, uh, a particular material or a particular exotic uh, 
content that I can't remember the name, that there was some discussion that this could be used for space sales. Absolutely. Uh, I, I need to give a clarification, though. We, we use aluminum, but it's a coating. The, the sail itself, which gives it its structural strength, the ones we're building today, not for interstellar. Uh, right now, we're building solar sails that will be useful for going uh, from the Earth, beyond the Earth. You don't launch a sail from the Earth. It has to get out of the gravity on a rocket. Otherwise, it'll never get off the ground because it doesn't have the force necessary to escape gravity. So we still use rockets to get them into space. But once they're in space and they're unfurled and the sunlight starts pushing on them, uh, the near-term sails will be used to go to the moon, to study the sun, maybe to go to Mars, fly around the inner solar system to Mercury or Venus. And those sails, which we can build today, are, are a thin plastic film coated with aluminum. So this thin plastic film, I describe it, if, if your listeners are familiar with Mylar, it's like Mylar. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, uh, it's like the, um, here we call it saran wrap, which is a plastic kitchen wrap that you preserve food in. By It's kind of sticky and you wrap food around yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and, and imagine saran wrap coated with aluminum, right? And that's what a sail looks like. It's a thin film with that, but that's heavy. That's two and a half microns thick. The material you're talking about really caught my eye. Because when I first started sewing solar sails and was dreaming of sails that were square kilometers, and you looked at the forces acting on that, there was no material in existence that was light enough and strong enough to support its own weight in those sizes, even in space. There just was nothing. And that all changed in uh, the early 2000s at Manchester uh, with the discovery of a material called graphene. That's G-R-A-P-H-E-N-E. Now, graphene is an allotrope of, of carbon. And what that means is it's just a, a different type of carbon, a different shape of carbon molecule, the atoms of the carbon. And what's interesting about graphene is instead of them, the carbon atoms all kind of being clumped together, which is, is what it looks like in typical uh, graphite or in your you know uh, leaded pencil that you use to take notes on, um, it's, it's a thin sheet, one atom thick. So imagine a, a piece of paper that's much, much thinner because it's only one atom of carbon thick, but they're all locked in a plane. So it's a perfectly flat sheet of carbon. This material is called graphene, and it's among the strongest materials ever discovered. It's 300 times stronger by weight than steel. And it is so strong that if you were to build a large sheet of one atom layer thick graphene and you could put an elephant on that sheet, it would not break. Wow. Okay. So if you take that and, and you can make it big, which we can't do today, it, the sizes today of pure graphene are typically millimeters to centimeters. Some people claim to have made larger, but I think they did that by... Um, adding some other elements to it, which decreases the structural strength. So we've got to really get pure graphene. But if you can make a one atom layer thick sheet of graphene to the scales that I'm talking about, which in principle you ought to be able to do, we just don't know how to do it yet, and then coat it with something to make it reflective because graphene is transparent. Uh, so you still have to put some kind of aluminum spray on it that's really thin or some other reflective material. You have the strength and the reflectivity to build these really big sails. Mm, very interesting. And graphene, is it 
currently used for any other industrial purposes or in any other industry or is it limited or we are focusing on using it for sales or this idea came to you because it's used somewhere else? I, the idea came to me because it's being used somewhere else. Um, I have to give credit to my longtime friend and mentor, Dr. Gregory Matloff in New York. He, he wrote the first paper after the discovery of graphene saying, hey, we could use this for solar sales and did the initial math and calculations. And he sent the paper to me because I work on and developing solar sales, right? And that just got me really excited. And I, I have samples of graphene in my office now to kind of tell people what the future, <laughs> the future of solar sales are. Um, so gra graphene, it has that potential, but you know we're, we're a long way from being able to, to do that. Now, it, its uses are wide. Uh, there are billions of dollars being invested in graphene research all over the world. I ended up, um, after I learned about this, researching it pretty heavily. And actually, as an author, I wrote a book about it. it it's called Graphene, the super strong, super thin material that will revolutionize the world. Um, written it a few years ago, back in 2018, but not much has changed since then. One of the biggest investors in graphene are the people who make your cell phones. Uh, mm -hmm. Samsung really likes it because it is an electrical conductor. It's almost a superconductor. It's extremely lightweight, extremely strong, very resistant to breakage. And anyone who's ever broken a screen on their cell phone uh, would be sympathetic to the thought of having a cell phone that basically is indestructible. And a cell phone made out of graphene would be extremely lightweight and essentially indestructible. And so a lot of uh, companies and manufacturers are trying to make stronger materials, lighter weight uh, products using graphene. I, I've heard people talking about making uh, windows from graphene or coating windows in graphene in areas that have typhoons and hurricanes to make them resistant to breakage. Uh, you, can, you can use uh, graphene is being researched to put in uh, as a replacement for chemical batteries to make something called a supercapacitor where you can store electrical energy in very small spaces without having to use chemistry and all of the, the, the environmental uh, negative side effects that come from what we have in battery technology. So there are a lot of things people are, are using graphene for or are working toward putting it into the marketplace with. Right. And I, I think I may have come across your article, your 2018 article. And again, is or were there not reports that large deposits of graphene were found or are supposed to be in Afghanistan? Is that the same place and location we are talking about? Um, I, I would doubt that because graphene in nature is usually in extremely small sizes, like microscopic sizes. And graphene is found among carbon. And in fact, the people who discovered it found it kind of mixed in with just your standard graphite and, and carbon, but it's all in microscopic quantities. If there's been the discovery of like a pure graphene deposit in Afghanistan, uh, I need to read about that because I'm not familiar with that at all. Um, all I am familiar with are the attempts to isolate it, separate it, or even make graphene in the laboratory. I'm not aware of any uh, natural deposits of pure graphene. You, you may be right, and you've discovered something I haven't heard about yet, so I need to do some, some internet research. No, I'm, I'm not really sure, because I think uh, I, I could have read it somewhere. It could have been another material. But just to come back to the sale, because I think we've got a good understanding of what you're saying, and for, because this is not a visual 
a podcast. It would have been easier if it was visuals and we could look at it. But I think your description was so good that I kind of have this picture in my mind. Now, you had mentioned that we could have this particular sail uh, closer to the sun and then use the sun's, uh, the light that comes from the sun, so the photons to move the sail and then further on we could power it with lasers. Just my question is, why could we just not do it with lasers from the very beginning? Oh, you could. There's no reason you shouldn't. Um, it's it's just a matter of scale and what kind of infrastructure is going to be available to us when we want to do that. There is a, a group uh, called the Breakthrough Starshot that was formed, oh gosh, now four or five years ago. It's a privately funded group. Uh, uh, an entrepreneur has, has given them millions of dollars to research the notion of building just that. Uh, so we can do a near-term interstellar mission like within the lifetime of a lot of the listeners here. And their idea is to build extremely high power lasers, put them on a mountaintop here on Earth, shine it into space and accelerate not really big sails like I have been working on, but sails that might be on the order of just a few square meters, extremely lightweight with a very small spacecraft, think the size of a computer chip, as opposed to a conventional 100 kilogram to 1,000 kilogram spacecraft, and send maybe tens, hundreds of thousands of those out into space toward the stars. And they are putting research dollars into developing uh, the theoretical basis and the uh, the testing of such a uh, laser system. How do you build spacecraft that are that small that can actually do science, communicate, and stay alive across interstellar distances? And what kind of material do you need on a sail that could survive the incredible laser power that would shine on it to accelerate it to the speeds that would need to get to the stars quickly? Their concept uh, which is a valid physical concept, and I actually have consulted for them and been to some of their meetings and met the people working on this project, that their idea is instead of, of a more um, uh, constant acceleration like I envision, where you're accelerating all the way out of the solar system, starting from the sun and then going faster and faster and faster across this 30 AU, their idea is you start from Earth orbit and hit it with so much laser light that you accelerate it to a fraction of the speed of light that could be 10% the speed of light in a matter of minutes. And all that energy on that sail would have to be dissipated. We don't have any materials right now, to the best of my knowledge, that can survive that, although people are working on different theoretical constructs that might be able to do it. That would be one way to go. I mean, nature says that ought to be possible. It ought to be possible to build materials that could survive that much acceleration from the laser. It ought to be possible to build spacecraft that have sensors that are that small, but the engineering has to catch up with the physics. So the answer to your question is, yes, you could do that. It opens up a whole host of other technology challenges, but they ought to be workable. I don't see a reason why it wouldn't work. Mm. And you also mentioned about when, 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 the sun, uh, when the light does hit the sail. So it's the photons that technically are moving this particular CubeSat or, or forward. Now, an interesting concept that I was thinking of also is or read about was the photon drive. And in that particular scenario, would you even need the sun or would you need the sunlight because photons, could you pick it up? So if you could just let us know whether what exactly is a photon drive and is that even valid? Uh, a photon drive is a good idea. 
Uh, I actually uh, worked on a paper with, again, my, my colleague Greg Matloff on a photon drive many years ago. Um, there are two ways to do that. Uh, one is a photon sail, uh, where you reflect light from the sail with some kind of onboard laser system, but there's a, it, it's not the most efficient way to do it, but it ought to work. Uh, and the other is that you just emit light from your, your spacecraft and use the, the momentum. That's a rocket if you do that, right? A laser that's powerful enough that emits enough photons we're back to rockets again because, you know, rock light goes one way and it pushes you the other way, right? So in theory, if you could build a, an extremely lightweight laser that produced extremely intense and powerful laser light, it would propel a spacecraft. Uh, and in fact, I know it sounds like I'm shilling my books, but I actually have that in one of my science fiction novels with uh, Travis Taylor. It's called uh, Saving Proxima. And we had to come up with a, a physically possible star drive that didn't require anything, you know, really exotic like warp drives, which, you know, nature, we're not sure if that is real or not, or, or things like they have in science fiction movies. And what we used was the photon drive. And it would be basically an extremely intense beam of light that would come out of the spacecraft. And you're, you're reinventing a rocket when you do that. And theoretically, sure, yeah, you could do that. Um, I have no idea how to build a laser that powerful or that lightweight, but I don't know how to biggest build a sail that's a square kilometer either. So, you know, we could have breakthroughs that enable us to do that. So that's absolutely possible. Right. And from a sticking to the sail concept of the sail engineering, does that mean the future of space travel and to the next star or to the next galaxy would initially start with probably smaller AI and then in time, if everything is fine, it would be followed by humans because I think the ultimate aim of all of us is to get out there into space and see how far we can go. That's the dream that has always been interesting for us. And I think that is why science fiction is so interesting with Star Trek and other programs. It's getting out there into the unknown and challenging yourself to see if you can actually settle in there. It's, it's the basic exploration drive, right? Well, that's what has been inspirational for me. I was um, I, I was not old enough to watch Star Trek, the original series, when it premiered. I was a toddler. <laughs> uh, but I watched the reruns uh, with my older sister when I was old enough to do that. And that's one of the things that inspired me. I mean, I want to be on the Starship Enterprise or one of its sister ships uh, and, and exploring those strange new worlds. Uh, we're a long way from that. Uh, so I think the progression for interstellar travel will follow the same path that just mundane and I'm glad to be able to say mundane, uh, space travel does today. Before we sent people into Earth's orbit, we sent spacecraft. Uh, the, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik. We launched Explorer 1. They sent up Yuri Gagarin. We sent up you know, John Glenn and Alan Shepard. Uh, the moon, uh, they sent the, the robotic landers. We sent uh, the surveyor spacecraft before we sent people. Right now, we're exploring Mars with our robots, but we're looking at designs for how we'll send people. So I think the robots will precede the humans uh, when we go to the stars, just like they have when we've, when we now are now expanding into the solar system. So I think you're, you're absolutely correct. The spacecraft with robots will come first. People will come later because we take so much more mass to keep us alive. We have to air, water, food. There's a minimum number of people, companionship, uh, all the stuff that has to keep us alive weighs a lot, and that's harder to accelerate. Whereas something really small and lightweight, you can accelerate much, much easier. 
So a lot of my colleagues think that's the reason we'll never go to the stars with people. And I tell them, you know, you should never, never say never. <laughs> um, uh, and and let, let's take it as a stepwise approach because the first steps, even in their view and my view, are the same. We send robots first. And once we get that problem solved, we can start thinking about scaling it up and, and how do we go to those strange new worlds. Mm. In uh, less than one of our earlier episodes, we had spoken to Avi Loeb, and he was talking to us about the Oumuamua. Now, one of the ideas there was there is a slim, let's say, very slim possibility that that particular object was some kind of a solar sail that could have been, and again, this is all speculation, but it's always fun to speculate because of the trajectory the movement as it moved away from the sun, like you were mentioning, there was a push and the push seemed to be artificial. Now, this is none of this is confirmed, but do you have any thought on that? Well, I have read Avi's papers. I've heard him speak on this topic. He's also a, a principal of this uh, breakthrough starshot that I mentioned earlier. And given his position, you know, at Harvard, it's hard to ignore someone who has those credentials in the background and the research they've done. Uh, so I would say it's not impossible, but before I'm going to say that's what it was, of course, we have to have, I think, more evidence than we do. However, uh, you, I have to look at the universe and I see this big universe out there. And uh, from, from a totally materialistic point of view, if, you, if you're a naturalist and you think about life and the development of life and life on Earth and the immensity of the universe, the, you know, that leads you to the conclusion that we're probably not alone. Don't know if there's anybody there right now, but we're probably not alone. Um, I'm a person of Christian faith, and so I look out there and I don't place limits on, on what I believe God can do. So it's entirely possible that we're not the only place where there's life out there. And so the 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 the, the plausibility of other intelligent beings creating something that we could also imagine creating because they have the same laws of physics they're going to have to think about that we do, and sending probes out into the universe is plausible. Why not? Now, my skepticism comes into another area, and it's something we haven't really touched on. We've talked a lot about the immense distances and the vastness of space. I would contend that deep time is something also vast that we don't like to think about and is equally a challenge. And if you think about the age of our solar system alone, it's four and a half billion years. That's 4,500 million years years. <laughs> and then when you start getting into, you know, a, a, what, what is a million years and then you get down to a human lifespan, we don't have an idea of what that means in terms of passage of time, right? Civilization on earth, we've, you know, you're, you're in one of the oldest cultures on the planet, right? And it goes back five, eight, 10,000 years. Uh, to talk about something that's orders of magnitude longer than that is difficult to imagine, right? And the universe is older than that. Our star and our sun and our planet are uh, not a first-generation star. So there have been planets out there far longer than our solar system existed. So the likelihood of there being somebody out there who may send probes out is high, in my opinion. I think it's rare, but it's not zero. And But the problem comes in this. What's the likelihood that one of their probes would arrive here now when we have the technology to see it and detect it? We've only had this technology for less than 100 years out of four and a half billion years in the history of the planet and 13 billion years in the universe. 
So unless life is extremely common and constantly over millions of years sending these probes out through space, the likelihood of one getting here when we have the capability of seeing it, in my opinion, is next to zero. So not to be, you know, a, a negative person, but the, the data would have to be extraordinary for me to accept that. Uh, and, and that's the reason. It's the probabilities. And when you mix deep space with deep time, it, it gets to be a very low probability. True. That, that reminds me in the corporate world, that this concept of the cheese and all the holes in the cheese where the line has to align exactly where it goes through all. And if you put time into it along with space, then there's so much that has to align for this to happen. Then what you said is absolutely true. What are the chances that it is here right in time for us to observe it, right? It's, it's very low, but, but I do want to say it's not zero, right? And, and therefore, it, you know, given enough time, <laughs> you know, even something that's a really low probability event might happen. So, you know, we have to take it seriously, but don't necessarily jump to that conclusion right away. Mm. And now the popular uh, culture talks a lot about getting to Mars, but we're also talking a lot about a holiday to Mars. And there's travel that people can afford, which is which is brilliant. And we need that to happen. If you can afford it, then well and good. Because whenever people with money do come in, that will start that particular industry. And then later on, I guess, you know, with time and scale, everyone will follow. But my question to you is, Initially, at this stage, uh, we do have a lot of space law that we are working on or, or countries are working on. Is it necessary to have some kind of a tax? And what, when I say tax, I mean if, if I can afford uh, 10 million to go uh, on a trip around the earth, should some of that get into future research? Shouldn't some of that get into students and people who are doing research which may not have monetary benefits? Because ultimately, that's the goal, right? Well, and, and I as I probably should have mentioned earlier on, I, I am speaking as a personal citizen here, not representing my, my, my employer at NASA. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of that. No, I'm not a big fan of taxing stuff like that for those purposes. Um, I think that everything we do is taxed. Government's going to get its, what is the term, pound of flesh. <laughs> um, yep. From everything we do, it's been happening since the Roman times and before, right? Every bit of transaction we do. So I'm sure there are taxes paid. Uh, uh, on these people flying to space and the corporate taxes that the companies pay for for flying them there, but but I'm afraid if we overregulate and overcharge these initial phases, we might kill the industry before it ever really gets going. And I think you're exactly right. Just look at the history of aviation, right? When when we first had airplanes flying, uh, there there were the people who developed the technology and the risk takers and the test pilots, and then once it became safe enough. You had commercial airlines, but it was only the ultra wealthy who could afford those commercial airlines early. And then as the number of people flying increased, costs went down, economies of scale of manufacturing kick in. And, and now we can all, you know, middle class people anyway, can, can catch airplanes and fly anywhere they want. Um, I think space travel will probably in the solar system going to Earth orbit, the moon, Mars, will will follow that model. We just have to be careful that we don't overregulate or overburden with taxes the early stages, or it will remain too expensive forever and won't open up to the rest of us and will forever be the province of the ultra-wealthy. 
what we need is that same economy of scale. And the ultra-wealthy will probably start it, and then it'll be the wealthy, and then it'll just be the upper middle class, and then it'll be the middle class, and eventually I, my hope is that it'll open up for everyone. And, and I don't think we can do that if we overburden initially the whole process. I'm so happy you said that, uh, Les, because that has also been going around and uh, there are a few people who are already making sounds and noise that there should be a tax. But I'm just happy that that's the way you think because that's how we're going to be moving forward. Now, you also mentioned NASA and probably a good time for us to understand from you the Near-Earth Asteroid Scout, or I think you call it the Near Scout uh, project with the CubeSat at NASA. Could you tell us your involvement and what exactly your role is and what is the mission all about? Sure. Uh, Nia Scout was my idea, actually. I proposed it, uh, and, and there was another team that proposed a very similar idea at about the same time from a different NASA center at NASA JPL. I'm at the Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama, JPL's in California. And there was a competitive solicitation uh, for secondary payloads to ride on the first flight of NASA's big new rocket, Artemis One. And we both wrote very similar proposals, and we merged teams to, to have one project. And the idea was to take a small spacecraft, uh, a CubeSat, which you've mentioned a few times here. And a CubeSat is basically a spacecraft that's extremely small. You can hold it in your hand. Uh, each cube is, is kind of modular, and they put together uh, each cube's uh, 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters, can weigh up to about a kilogram. And we had one envisioned to be six of these, so it's about the size of a boot box or a backpack. So it's not very big. And we figured out how to package a solar sail that was 86 square meters made out of this two and a half micron thin film that I mentioned earlier, this plastic film coated with aluminum, packaged in there with four booms that deploy out from the middle of it. And each boom's uh, over seven meters long to make it a square sail. And we did all kinds of testing development. I spent most of uh, seven years developing the sail technology while the team at JPL and at Marshall worked on the spacecraft. And we were on the Artemis One uh, when it launched successfully back in November of 2022. Now, the mission was uh, supposed to be a two-year mission where we unfurl the sail long after we launch and have passed the moon, so 17 days into the flight. And the sail would then take us from the moon area to an asteroid where we have a camera provided by NASA JPL to, to image an asteroid and do science. But unfortunately, to our great disappointment, uh, the launch went beautifully. The rocket went up. We, I got about two and a half hours sleep that night and woke up for the first radio contact attempt. And we were unable to make contact with the spacecraft. So we, taught, we tried and tried uh, for uh, months to reach the spacecraft using NASA's deep space network, these big 30-meter diameter radio dishes with a lot of power. We were essentially shouting at the spacecraft, hey, dummy, wake up. Um, and it never woke up. We don't know what happened. We have no idea. We do know it had nothing to do with the solar sail because the solar sail was packaged in the spacecraft and wasn't going to be unfurled until well into the mission. Uh, the first thing the spacecraft was supposed to do was radio home and say, I'm here. <laughs> and yeah. then we were going to command it to deploy its solar panels and test the radio and everything on board the spacecraft and make sure it was all stable before we even tried to deploy the sail. But it never, it never answered our call. So we have no idea what happened. 
We do know that of the CubeSats that launched, there were 10. There was another one that was mounted in the rocket right next to us that also never called home. And a couple of the others uh, called home but never sent any data back home. So we were, we were looking at what might have gone wrong in the whole area of launching these CubeSats, and there's no definitive answer to that question. So it was a lot of work, a lot of effort, and, and nothing happened. So now we're working on another sail, which is called Solar Cruiser, which my team is, is developing, and we're working on it right now. And it, we're hoping to fly it. Uh, we've got a launch opportunity in 2028 that we're working toward. And uh, we're trying to get all the funding lined up to make sure that flight happens so we can finally get one of these sails flown. Right. So you have these couple of CubeSats that have gone rogue on us now, probably finding their way through space. But you mentioned the size of this particular this particular spacecraft, which is quite small. Now, when you do think about these missions or planet, do you is space debris also a problem? Because something that small can can be taken off its course if there is a collision, or is that even a problem, or is it beyond the orbit of where we expect space debris to be? It, the answer is you, you got it very at the end. Orbital debris and the debris problem is really restricted to what's circling the Earth, by, and it's kept there by the Earth's gravity. It didn't have the energy to escape. And there are, there are lots of debris in Earth orbit. It's really sad. Uh, in the history of the space exploration, all the countries who've launched rockets have put debris up there. Those who've launched more rockets have put more debris. So we're guilty here <laughs> of putting a lot of it up there. Us, Russia, and now China probably have the distinction of putting the most debris in space. For everything from bits of, of rockets that blew up uh, to uh, uh, actually, unfortunately, human urine circling the earth at frozen, traveling at eight kilometers a second. If it hits you, it's like a bullet hitting you. And that's a real problem. But with our sailcraft, we don't unfurl the solar sail until we're beyond the earth and we're in deep space. And when you get beyond Earth orbit, there is no debris problem. So what you have is uh, micrometeorites, which are natural in space, which are like little pieces of dust all the way up to the size of a pea, uh, uh, you know, the green peas that you eat, traveling really, really fast, some of them like 18 kilometers per second. And they'll hit our sail, but they, they, they go through the sail so quickly because the sail is so thin, they don't lose much energy of their, of their motion, which is what causes damage. And so basically they just poke a tiny hole in the sail and the sails are built to withstand that. And you could put lots of little holes in these sails and they would still hold together. And if there is a tear that results from that, like in a parachute, we put in ripstop and our designs are robust in that we allow for over a 10 year mission, a loss of up to about three to 5% of the area due to being little tiny holes from micrometeorites in worst case. So uh, these sails are, are not at risk from orbital debris. We are at risk from nature's debris, but we have plans to survive that. Right. And with this NIA Scout mission, you said 2028, and this is just something that I've always wondered because the best thing for us, and when I say us, is the non-experts who don't have to take part in these experiments or, or work hard for it, is if we could get some really good images, because what I tend to see is most of it is composite images and it's, again, we come back to numbers, change to images, and that takes so much of time, but you're, you're always wondering whether 
this is this a real image now is it difficult to get some good nice hd images of space out there or what's happening or is it not really possible are you talking about of of natural objects in space or are you talking about of our sail <laughs> um Na- because natu- if you natural objects well yeah i mean just uh, i would encourage you and your listeners to go to the uh, uh, NASA sites, which are bringing pictures back from the surface of Mars. Now, yes, those a lot of those are stitched together because they want really, really high resolution imaging. But some of the best cameras, HD cameras, are on those rovers now. Um, so the answer is yes, you can get really high definition, high quality images back. The problem we have is is one of timing today when you are watching television or on your computer, you have a certain screen resolution. You know, 4K is the latest thing now for, for watching videos. In order for us to get 4K images back from an outer planet, we have to build a rocket and a spacecraft using that 4K, launch it. It takes, it takes five to seven years to build it. So you freeze your technology of what your camera is going to look like five to seven years before you launch it. And then it takes years to get it there. So if I were to launch a 4K camera to go to Neptune, I wouldn't get the first 4K images back from Neptune if I started the project today, probably for 15 to 20 years. What will be the resolution we're all used to on our TVs and videos in 20 years? It'll be beyond 4K. Right. So what you're seeing is the limits of technology on these spacecraft when they were designed. So if if we want to know why are the images coming back from the, the Juno mission at Jupiter in the resolution that they're in, it's because that mission was launched years ago and its design froze, you know, seven years before that. And they picked the best camera available at that time. So what you're seeing from current deep space missions is what was capable of being delivered 15 to 20 years ago. (laughs) So it's kind of a time capsule in terms of the technology. And that aligns with every time we look out into space, whether it's it's the sun, we are still looking at it uh, eight minutes later. So I guess we are never in the present. Uh, well, yeah, we're in the present when we're here, right? But you're right. That's one of the beautiful things that I like to talk to uh, to kids about, and even adults, I don't know that they think of it this way. When you go out on a starry night, and the sky is clear, and you're looking up, and you see those twinkling stars, the act of seeing means that light from that star, which may have left that star tens, hundreds, thousands of years ago, traveled through space across unimaginable distances that we covered earlier in this in this discussion and it touched your eye so when you see something that comes from a distant star something that was in the core of that star in its fusion driven reactor at the core of that star traveled all the way through space to touch you so you're actually getting something physical that touched your body that began its voyage inside another star. So every time you go out at night to do that and you look at the stars, you're touching the infinite. And and I just gave myself goosebumps thinking about it. <laughs> no, that, that, that's beautiful. I, I think of the same thing. And I also think about it on the other end as well. So if somebody's looking back at us, are they seeing 
the are they seeing Earth before primates were even there before we were even before we even evolved? Is that a possibility of them actually looking back and because the light traveling from us to them is also taking time? That's correct. Um, if you if you look at the size of our galaxy, which is our cluster of hundreds of billions of stars, and its length is about a hundred thousand light years, so it takes a single photon from a star on one edge, 100,000 years to get to the other side. And so if you can imagine a telescope powerful enough, which is physically possible, perhaps, using something called gravity lensing, which would be a topic of another, of another uh, podcast or something, but you, you could amplify those images across vast distances and essentially look back in time at another world and the development of potentially of life on that world from afar. So it's entirely possible that somebody out there has telescopes like this and have been watching Earth or planets like the Earth uh, for a long enough period of time. This is that deep time thing again uh, to, to see how it's changed and, and what life is here. Yeah, it's entirely possible. True. And you briefly touched on gravity lensing right now. And would that also, so if we could stay there for a minute and we also hear antimatter anti-gravity when we talk about space travel so if you could enlighten us a little bit whether do you think that antimatter or a particular technology where anti-gravity is used and we've been hearing about all this in the latest uap phenomenons and claims are being made that this particular technology is possible and uh, is that interesting to you oh it's definitely interesting and as a physicist we have to be real careful because at the turn of the 20th century, coming out of the 19th century, most physicists thought all of the science we needed to understand the universe had been discovered. And they were some were so bold as to say there's none left, it's now just filling in the last decimal place. And of course, a few years later, quantum mechanics came along and Einstein came along and we had relativity and all of those people who said it was all understood were wrong. <laughs> so anybody who says we understand how nature works completely and things are impossible, uh, there is a, a more than zero chance they're going to be wrong. All we can say is about how we currently understand nature. And I'll tell you right now, based on our current understanding of how nature works, anti-gravity is science fiction. Okay? Um, antimatter is not. Antimatter is very real. Uh, we've known this since the 1920s. There are, there, there are protons, the, the constituents of the conventional atom that you know, people think of and you learn in, in, in school, if you're not a, a nuclear physicist or, or particle physicist, you have the, the, the protons, neutrons, and electrons. And those have your protons and neutrons in the nucleus of the atom, electron cloud kind of buzzes around it. And, and that's the physicality of matter from which we're all made. Well, in nature, they found that there are particles that look like protons, have the mass of a proton, but instead of a positive one charge, they have a negative one charge. And they found uh, particles that look like electrons have the mass of an electron and all the other properties of an electron. But instead of a minus one charge, they have a plus one charge. Those are called positrons. And the other is called an antiproton. And sure enough, like you can make hydrogen by putting protons and electrons together and have the electrons orbit the protons, you get hydrogen. You can take antiprotons with positrons orbiting them and make anti-hydrogen. That's really cool. What's the significance of that? 
The significance of that is when a particle and its antiparticle come into contact with each other, they go through a process that's called annihilation. And basically, they cancel each other out, and all of their mass is turned into energy. According to Einstein's equation, E equals mc squared. Energy is equal to mass times the speed of light squared. This proves him right. The mass of the proton and the antiproton go boom, and all of their mass is converted into radiation, gamma rays, x-rays, smaller subatomic particles that go flying out at the speed of light. And, and basically, all of that matter is turned into energy. That's antimatter, and that's real. The problem is you can't store it very long because it's hard to store something that can't be stored in matter because as soon as it comes in contact with matter, it annihilates, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can make it uh, the CERN accelerator in Europe. Uh, one of the byproducts of their particle collisions are antimatter, and they've studied it. Uh, particle accelerators all over the world, probably there in India, and universities, research universities can make very small quantities of antimatter. And if your listeners have a banana in their home, uh, they might be alarmed at first and then comforted because it's not a danger to know that uh, most bananas, because of the soil in which they're grown, there is a radioactive form of potassium, potassium-40. And it has a lifetime of, of quite a while, uh, months, uh, days, months to years. I mean, a, a half-life, I've forgotten, I think is days. And periodically, it will spontaneously decay into another uh, another atom, and it give off an antimatter particle, which is then annihilated in the banana before it ever reaches you, right? So every day, that bunch of bananas on your desk or in your kitchen, on average, is emitting, each banana is, is creating an antiparticle, I think an antiproton, every day. And it's from the natural decay of the potassium-40 that's uh, in, in the banana. Now, it's not a health risk. I don't want people to throw out their bananas. This is just part of the natural radiation environment in which we've lived as a species forever. Uh, there are uh, cosmic rays coming in from space that shower us in radiation all the time, some of which are antimatter. Uh, in the soil, there's natural radioactivity. But the most fun one is, in my opinion, the notion that, you know, if you want to point out antimatter to your, your best friend, just point to that banana and say, wait here for a day and you know, a particle of antimatter is going to be produced in our banana. Um, now, the key would be how do you store that and use it as a rocket propulsion system or whatever, and we don't know how to do that. But it is physically possible. That can happen. So in, in terms of all, how all this ties to the UAP phenomenon, I have no idea. I, I do know that um, when I was in elementary, middle, and high school, I was really big into the whole flying saucer thing and believed we were being visited by aliens. Until I went to college and learned about the things we've talked about in this podcast, deep space and deep time. And then I realized the probability of there being aliens here now across these distances with a technology that we would even recognize as technology was next to zero. And so I put that out of my head and said, no, this is all just people seeing things or making it up. But I had a caveat. And that caveat was, tell me when the military systems using multiple sensors see something. And if they see it, I'll take another look. Well, by golly, that's happened, right? The last 10 years or so, we've had some things declassified and make it into the public area where you have these unidentified aerial phenomena around some of the military aircraft and battleships and not battleships, aircraft carriers and things. And I won't say it's aliens because I don't know, but it's something. And uh, it needs to be investigated. We need to figure out what it is. 
And uh, it could be any number of things. Aliens is on that list, but I would not immediately jump to the conclusion that it's, you know, we're being visited from another star. But I wouldn't rule it out either. True. The banana story is beautiful. And probably that's one of the reasons why the that particular fruit is considered to give you energy and is used by sportsmen when you're down on energy. And I, this is absolutely a non-scientific guy talking. I'm just trying to connect dots with what you said and make up my own theory. Maybe that's why the, the fruit actually gives you energy. I don't think so. I think it's more in the chemistry of the of the nutrients that are in the banana and the fact that it has a lot of this potassium, which you need as an electrolyte in your body. The antimatter, even if even if it were part of that, it's an insignificant amount compared to the total number of atoms in the banana. Um, it's a beautiful thought, but <laughs> probably not what the health people will tell you gives you the energy from a banana. But the best part about this is thank you for fact-checking me right there online. <laughs> and that, that's the advantage. That's the advantage when I can speak to somebody who can actually do live fact-checking. So we've just had an example of me just being cancelled. No, sorry. <laughs> I apologize. Don't mean to contradict you on air, but I, I uh, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I think our listeners would love that. So earlier we were talking about matter and antimatter and whenever matter and antimatter come into contact with each other, they, there is energy that is released. Now, when we look at the world around us, we see matter. We don't see antimatter. So, this question of fine-tuning at the very beginning of the universe, does that mean that there needed to be or there is a little bit more matter than antimatter so that we can all be around? You've had this discussion before. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not a cosmologist, and so I really am getting out of my field to speculate on things like that. But the physics that I studied about cosmology and the Big Bang when I took astrophysics and studied uh, nucleogenesis and the origins of the universe was that that at, after the Big Bang, that there was more anti there was more matter than antimatter after uh, a time. For some reason, there was an asymmetry in the Big Bang, which is why the universe is mostly made out of matter, and antimatter only exists in these extreme conditions. Um, I, I have no idea why that's the case. And when you get to this fine tuning argument. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier in the discussion that uh, I am a person who believes in the existence of God, and I am a Christian, and so I have absolutely uh, no problem accepting the idea that the extreme fine-tuning of the natural constants that seem to make life possible through chemistry, and and that this is a whole again a whole other podcast. There's some great books written on this topic from people who are theists and people who are atheists talking about this fine-tuning. And, and the, it sure looks like everything was engineered for us to exist and to, to exist and, and, and have technology and be able to look out at the universe and, and ask these questions. Uh, the opposing view would be, you know, given enough time, random probability would eventually produce a universe like this. And if you have an infinite number of big bangs, then you eventually get us, right? A real low probability event. But, you know, given enough time, those things happen. Um, I, I reject that. Um, because there's no evidence that there is a thing called the multiverse or that there is more than one Big Bang or has ever been more than one Big Bang. The current evidence looks like there has been our bang and that's it, right? And it just so happens to be so finely tuned in all of the physical constants, the charge to mass ratio, the electron, the fine structure constant, all these other things, that it makes chemistry and life possible. Um, I don't think that's an accident. But that's, that is my philosophical worldview, not a scientific worldview. It's... it's um, 
it, it's based, I don't think it's contradicted by nature. I think it's supported by nature, but it definitely originates uh, fr from my theology. True. And you got me right there. I have had that conversation before with the cosmologist. And that was my comeback at immediately being fact-checked on the banana. So I had to... I had to <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it is out of my field. You're right. Uh, but but it's, it's something I think all of us, quite frankly, should think about. And, and part of, I think, what is a problem in terms of our culture today is, is we argue about a lot of stuff that we ought to really be thinking about the deeper questions and agreeing with each other on. Mm. You know, I, I can imagine our ancestors thousands of years ago before cell phones and electric lights and technology sitting out at night and their campfires going dim and they're looking up at the sky before they go sleep somewhere and they see all those points of light. And just think of the, the great questions that they asked. You know, who am I? Why am I here? What's out there? What's the meaning of life? And, and those kinds of things. And, and how can we, you know, what does it all mean? Th those are the questions I think that are at the core of being human that we don't do enough. And we're too distracted by all the stuff around us. And, and so uh, I would encourage your listeners to take a deep breath and, and find a way regularly to get outside, to look at the sky and, and, and just kind of get lost in infinity and think about some of those questions, because I think it's in thinking about those questions that I find my meaning in life, and I find my faith, and I also find my kinship with other people, and my excitement about sending things out to explore that infinity. So um, that's my preaching moment here <laughs> uh, right. to your listeners. It's, it's something I really admonish everyone to do at every opportunity, because I think it takes you places that are healthy and, and get you thinking about what really matters. True, Les. And I think that's also what I find very amazing about you is you've written some amazing science fiction books. I think I've read about three or four of them. It's just wild stuff. It's very exciting. And then you get back to work and you get to NASA and you do the math and you do the logic. Now, all of us, everyone talks about maintaining a balance. And for our listeners, people who are listening to you, there are a lot of kids who would be listening to you and getting very inspired with what you say. And I do understand it's equally important to dream, look up at the stars. But do you think it's also important because of everything that you've said, when we talk about sales and solar sales as well, there's an engineering component that comes in and there's somebody who has to sit and make that work. How do you maintain this balance between both these worlds? And how and I think both are equally important because one feeds from the other. But I just want to hear from you because you're the guy. Wow. How do I personally do it? I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm one of those people that can't find enough hours in the day to do everything they want. And, and now that I'm older, I, I'm realizing there are only so many years left and I've got all these tasks I want to do that'll go undone. Um, you know, your priorities in life, everybody has to make their own list of priorities. For me, uh, they kind of flow down from... Again, you know, my allegiance to, to, to God, to my family. Uh, I have a wife and, and two young adult children now, and that, that was a very high priority for me for years. Um, but what kept me uh, focused on, on work and things that I did is, is I had to be prepared. I studied physics. I had that goal for since I was 10, 11 years old that I wanted to be a scientist and work for NASA. It's been my dream. And when your job 
is a fulfillment of your dream and you look at going to work not as drudgery but as being able to do what you know you enjoy um you, you find more time and i think you're more productive in doing that and i have been truly blessed i realize that not many people have that luxury and so my admonition to young people uh is that if you uh, and, and older people, not necessarily just young, but primarily younger people. If your dream in, is to, to work in space or have your head in the stars, you know, go into the sciences primarily, not exclusively, work hard. All that hard work now will pay off. Because if that's your dream, once you get into the field and you're working in the field, it won't be work, it will be play. And you'll get paid for it. And for me, I, I find writing science fiction uses a different part of my brain or writing my popular science is not the math side of the brain it's the creative side of the brain. And I find that relaxing. And so one of the ways that after a particularly, you know, challenging day at work, even a, a fun job is still a job, right? You get tired from it. Um, come home, have dinner with my wife. Uh, when I was younger, interact with my kids who are now, you know, left the nest, but then to relax instead of watching a streaming show on TV, I'd go right. And that's what helped me relax and, and get some rest, then go to sleep. So for me, I'm wired that way. Not everybody may be. But I think if, if your listeners you know, think about what they do all day long and how much time they spend doing things that are not productive toward fulfilling their dream, and they actually make an, a logbook of that, they're going to realize, wow, I spend a lot of time on things that aren't necessarily that important to me. Maybe I can reprioritize. Just something to think about. Beautiful. And your writing style, uh, the, do you sit and have a schedule or does it come to you? Because when we're talking about writers, we talk about a lot of them who talk about the muse, who where they sit down, concentrate, the ideas come to them. There are the other type of writers who have a very fixed agenda, five o'clock in the morning to seven o'clock in the morning on a table. Uh, what works for you as a writer? I, I write when I have time. <laughs> um, I would love to have more time to write. There are days I get none in. Uh, in fact, I'm getting ready to go to a conference in Montreal, and the topic is interstellar travel. Uh, I would encourage your listeners to look up the Interstellar Research Group, IRG.space. Um, our meeting is every two years, and next week we have a symposium. I don't know when your listeners will hear this. It's the week of uh, July 10th. Um, we're going to be in Montreal for our uh, once every two year meeting. Two years after that, uh, we'll be in College Station, Texas. Uh, we haven't had one in India. Have to talk to a university over there about how to make that happen, perhaps. Um, but we, uh, it, it, to me, I won't have any time to write. I'll be busy talking to people, thinking about the challenges of deep space and otherwise. So I go weeks at a time without writing a word. But then I might have a weekend where I, I spend most of the weekend writing. So it really comes in spurts. Beautiful. Before we just shut down, you did say that you've not done any of this in India, and I definitely am going to take that up. I will work on something, and you should be. I would like to welcome you to India soon. But before we go, Les, once again, thank you so much for your time. It's been so exciting. I will be putting up links to your books, your website, and everything else that you've done. But this has been such an amazing conversation. I've truly enjoyed it. Well, thank you for having me. It's It's been great speaking with you. And um, I, I have to say, I've been reading excitedly in our local uh, news here in the U.S. In fact, I think the New York Times just ran a great article about the rapid expansion of the Indian space program. 
and all the great stuff that's happening there uh, to develop the uh, capability to be a major space power and exploring nation. So I think it's awesome. So uh, keep up the good work, and there ought to be a good lot of good opportunities for those young people to actually work in the field. And I'm excited about that because I think the, the, the more of us that are doing this, the faster that future we all want to have arrive, we'll get here. So it's awesome. Great, list. Thanks a lot again and hope we can do this again. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. This Hubhopper original ko sunne ke liye aapka shukriya. अगर आप भी अपना पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करना चाहते हैं तो हब हॉपर स्टूडियो वेबसाइट पे रजिस्टर करें और एक मिनट के अंदर अंदर अपना खुद का पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करें यही नहीं स्टूडियो देता है आपको पूरी आजादी कहीं भी कभी भी अपना पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करने की सिर्फ तीन आसान स्टेप्स में तो साथ में अपना पॉडकास्ट शुरू करने के लिए तैयार जस्ट हॉप ऑन हब हॉपर सिंपली कॉन्टेंट